Are you there? Welcome to the Jack Jones and Martin Warner Show. And we're up. Batters into the box. Martin stepping up. Sorry. I'm getting into flow because we've got the man like Doug Ellen. Jack's entourage. What a show. Tell me about it. There's a lot to talk about. There's a reboot. Mate, I'm excited to be honest with you. If they they are trying to test whether people want the show, and I do. Does that mean heart. if you were asked, would you do a cameo? Isn't that the point of this conversation? I'm going to ask Doug Ellen, the creator, if I can be in it. Do you think that's rude? No, I don't. But mm, I, I mean, I've, I've got some questions to ask. Some really good ones. Like what? Can I be in the cameo? <laughs> <laughs> what would you play? You'd be Ari, innit? Ari, that yeah. Guy, innit? yeah the no. Ari double. Well, I, put my, I have to apply my film skills. I'd like to be Ari. <laughs> what um, else are you going to ask him? Yeah, I've got a million of them. And I've got one very burning question. Okay, don't tell me. Let's get dug on. <laughs> How similar was life working on Entourage to the party scenes, Doug, like in your life or when you got to L.A. or the other guys? Was there any similarity? I mean, everything I did on Entourage was an attempt to be, I want to say as realistic as possible because it was. Obviously, we put better looking people in the background. Okay, <laughs> so, so. You know, sometimes you look at a restaurant. That's the truest statement I've ever yeah. heard in my life. <laughs> but sometimes you look at Entourage and you look at a restaurant and you go, holy shit, this is the best looking group of people I've ever seen in a restaurant. <laughs> but everything that was happening was essentially really realistic, just a little heightened, a little more colorful, a little more wish fulfillment and all of that, you know. But um, And it's not that, by the way, I was everyone who knows who worked on the show and everyone who knows who knows me. I was never the partier guy. I was never an entourage guy. But I would go out, and I'm an observer, and I would see all of this stuff. And, uh, yeah, so we we made a deliberate attempt to be as realistic as possible, you know? So it's art imitating life, yeah? By the way, it really, like, all of it is art imitating life, and everything that happened on entourage, there would be so many similar things happening behind the camera and with Victory the Podcast it almost feels like the same thing is happening all over again. It's kind of surreal, you know? I feel like for you to write those scenes, yes, you're an observer, but then a part of you needs to... Res- like, there's a part of that in you as well. Maybe you've got some inner ex- exhibitionist or, like, some inner party yeah. animal just waiting to come out, basically. Listen, it's definitely all in me. And again, now, because of the podcast, I'm watching the show back, which I haven't in years. And there's so many elements of my personality and my life in each of the characters that it's, it's almost creepy when I watch it now, you know, and you know, my, my, you know, Ari and his wife were based on me and my ex-wife, my son played Ari's wife. And there are stories that were right from our lives, which, you know, my ex-wife used to yell at me, you're not putting that on TV. You know, I'm like, well, I mean, that's... Ari is one of my favorite characters of all time. Like that yeah. scene where he goes in with the super soaker when he's just shutting it down. And he's got a, and he's just leaving. It's just like it's amazing. And then his wife just comes in and he has to fall in line like a little pet dog. Basically, yeah, yeah. It's, it, he J- Jeremy Piven in that series he was he's, fucking he's, amazing. Yeah. To be honest, he's doing he's on a stand up tour right now. He's doing stand up comedy, amazing. and actually he's he'll be on uh, our podcast tomorrow. But uh, Jeremy was there was no one on earth that could have been better for that role and it was really uh it was pretty wild because when i wrote the first outline of the show i wrote jeremy piven into my outline to play my agent at the time who was a very different guy yeah and and jeff jacobs i don't know if you know him at all at caa 
It's completely different than Ari. Yeah. But I wanted Piven because I loved him from the Larry Sanders show and some other stuff. And then uh, I had never met the real Ari. There's a real Ari. I don't know if you guys know. but <laughs> I've never but met the real, real. Is that what real Ari's like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, real Ari would be like, you know, I'm fucking 10,000 times funnier than him, better than him and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But uh, when I met the real Ari at the pitch at HBO, he represented Mark Wahlberg. I'd never heard of him. I'd never met him. And I'm walking in with this idea and I'm like, you know, Jeremy Piven, I want to play this agent and whatever. And then I met Ari Emanuel and I was like, oh, my God, this is like the greatest character in history. And Piven, you know, who was a little different in Larry Sanders, he was a little chubbier, a little less together, had really transformed his body and, and was kind of like an Ari type now. So it just really kind of worked together. And the first time I got Piven on set, I was like, fuck, we're going to we're gonna do well with this, you know? Because when you think of Hollywood, that's what you think of is like the Ari character. You think of agents like storming around, like smashing shit up. Like, you know, when you hear <laughs> stories of like death row records by the day, back in the day, like, I want my fucking royalties, you know, and blah, blah, blah. Like, do you have characters like that today? I feel like it's hard to be as big a personality nowadays with that. Cause like you just get yeah. shunned from the industry. Basically, if you've got, yeah. if you're too large like that, basically. I, I mean, the world is a different place. And if you, you know, again, I, it's like that fine line of the PC bullshit that we're all dealing with now. But a guy like Ari on the show, Ari was at the end of the day, he was a good guy with a big mouth, but you yeah. can't have a, he had a heart. Have a, Do you know I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You can't have a mouth like that. In 2021, though, I mean, you can like if you're Governor Andrew Cuomo and then it comes out and they'll destroy your life. But oh, for sure. you, you can't talk like you can't talk like that anymore. You know, so um, now people are going to do it and they're going to get filmed and they're going to get outed and they're going to get fired. But and then you get um, canceled. Back, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they really are. But back in the day, 20 years ago. I mean, I, I worked in a mailroom. I saw people, you know, that was not exaggerated. But I mean, again, Ari was the nicer version of the agents I saw in the business <laughs> when I was coming up. Now, the difference now also is the agent's power is so much less. I mean, like, you, you know, you guys. They were the gatekeepers. You know, like, yeah, now you've got the internet, basically. Were, exactly. I mean, look at us. We like, we both have our own radio shows and like nobody, like nobody hired us. Nobody has to pay yeah. for it. We do it ourselves and. You know, you could do that with music, as you know. You could do that with films. So mm. they're becoming less and less relevant. But also just you – I mean, again, nobody should speak that way, I guess. But you can't speak that way. That's, you know, that's, that's going to be the end of your career if you talk that way. <laughs> and is it true that um, you put every word in Piven's mouth as a character, right? So the funny scenes, they're coming from your head. Is that right? For for a large portion of it, yeah, yeah, sadly. But uh, you know, so much of this, so much of the stuff. Like I said, when I was watching it yesterday, so much of it is like, oh my god, that was like me and my ex wife there, and that was, you know, I put little bits of myself in each of the characters, which I, I'm not even sure I realized at the time, you know. Um, so it, it's weird looking at it back now as a you know a 50 year old, which is a little past that now. But um, you know, I tried to put, and I think you know writers, you know, write what you know, you know, unless you become like, you know, Shakespeare and you can write whatever you want. But I, I've kind of always written kind of my life in certain versions and mixed in and matched it with other things that are happening. And, you know, the inspiration for Entourage was obviously Mark Wahlberg's life. 
Um, but I, I infused the idea of a movie star's career with much more aspects of my life, you know? Gotcha, gotcha. Is it, was it remarkable to you that how big Entourage became and how many seasons it ran, then a movie? Like, did you ever see that come in and then to then sustain a weekly podcast after it? Did you get in there and think, this is going to be big? It was only when you got started. I mean, that's iconic now, basically. For sure. It's, it's iconic. Yeah. yeah, it's part of culture uh, when you talk about Entourage. You know, I'm the most negative, neurotic Jew on the world, on the planet. You know, I, I don't, you know, I, it took two years of hell to get that show shot. And, you know, at the time, what was difficult about it? Well, HBO, Chris Albrecht was the president of the HBO, who was the best. And, and he definitely believed in the show early on, but I don't think a lot of other people at HBO did. I think they thought this was going to be like their their young adult thing that, you know, like maybe a couple of people would watch. So they were very, very hard on notes and, and letting it go. I had never run a television show before, so it was just not easy going. And if you asked me after we shot the pilot, I would have been thrilled if we got a season out of it. I mean, I you know, I never expected anything to come. And, you know, I had just before that I had done a mo- an independent movie that – Universe for like a million and a half bucks that Universal Studios picked up. I was like the hot director for about 45 seconds in LA yeah. getting all these offers. And I, I was turning shit down. I'm like, nah, I'm not going <laughs> to do that yet. And then the movie came out and it was a million and a half dollar movie that was released on 2200 screens. Like it was a $50 million movie. And again, I thought it did okay. Cause it made more money than it cost in the opening weekend, but they didn't think it did okay. And I was unemployable. I could not get Crazy. a job. At, as anything. I mean, so I went from like legitimately, you want to go do the heartbreak kid, you know? Wow. To, yeah. Yeah. You can't get anywhere. So when the show was happening, I was just, you know, sort of happy to be getting some type of paycheck and was hoping it would continue. And, you know, I kind of acted like that for the whole eight seasons and the movie. I never felt confident or this and that. I just felt keep your head down and keep rolling as much as you can, you know? So. Did you, I think the second part of that, you know, in terms of the the way that Entourage has impacted culture, like you're able to sustain long enough that you're still doing a podcast series based around the chemistry and some of the topics that came up and especially it's thematic. I mean, it, it's thematic for my years growing up. Like it's it's part of me. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, you yeah. know, where I'm talking about Ari, I'm th- I think sometimes I think, what would Ari do? And you fantasize about <laughs> it. Like, and obviously you have to take some, a couple rungs down the ladder of, of charisma. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? To, so you're not yeah. hurting no one's feelings. But like, did you get start to get a taste for, do you know what? This is actually like fucking dope. I mean, <laughs> you know what? There were so many cool moments and, you know, sitting in a restaurant here and overhearing people talk about the show newspapers all over the world referencing it's you know espn saying lines from the show so obviously i felt all of that but you know as i said like yesterday i watched the season two finale i haven't seen it in years and i got the same feeling that i got back then because i always used to be like well that's it that's the end of the show so at the end of season two i was like How, we're not gonna be able to top that like it felt like the end of a series and every year i used to feel like that what what's next how much more can you do so i never really sat back and and said wow and even you know to me the most interesting thing with the with the me too movement and you know this the pc culture that's kind of hit us 
that really hit the Entourage movie right in the face. You know, I mean, we came out, you know, we came out at a time where, you know, the movie tested through the roof at Warner Brothers. If you like the show, you like the movie, but the reviews turned it into all of a sudden we were this misogynistic animals, which it was the same thing as it was before, but the world was shifting. And the last three years, to be honest with you, has been like this entourage abuse. The show wasn't as good as it, we thought it was, you know, the usual bullshit that that happens. And, and again, I'm not even saying that because, you know, w- with the culture, obviously, we all can learn and there are ways to be better and there are ways to, you know, that people can be kinder. And I'm all for that. But the funny thing about Entourage as opposed to The Sopranos or Wolf of Wall Street, they get passes by somehow viewing them as art, where Entourage, which at one point was considered the best show on TV by a lot of critics, suddenly became, oh, it's a stupid comedy with some, you know, half-naked people in it. So the, the, the narrative on it really changed to from it being this smart, realistic look at Hollywood and friendship to some kind of misogynistic camp. So that has really, I felt really, which is great, since we started this podcast, has really turned. The show, I think, is starting to get a whole new look during the pandemic. I think people are realizing it wasn't as quite as vulgar as they maybe imagined it, and it was actually pretty tame and quite realistic. And like I said, if it was in 2021... The people would talk differently, not because they were being PC, but because the times have shifted. And there are things that you you would say in 2006 that you wouldn't say in 2021. We so. can say that for a lot of us. I think, to be honest, it got a bum steer, right, in as much that had it not been concentrated around comedy, it may have lived past that stigmatism, right? And that, that that's a shame. But I was going to say it, that, well, basically, comedy, when you're comparing it to The Sopranos and well, stuff, obviously the subject matter is heavier, well, drama, what they're talking about in well, that. Dr- you drama I mean? gets so, an authenticity, right, in terms of it gets yeah. looked at in its period, whereas comedy gets... As a genre. Well, it gets to age quicker, yeah. but it's totally and utterly wrong. So maybe the re-representation of it, whether it be through your podcast or people accessing the show, like I've I've had this urge to to want to run it, and every now and again I'll watch something again because I loved it so much, and I'm going to do it. But I think people accessing it again, and looking at it in the context that it's, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, right? I mean, the insult comedy and the things that were going on back then, particularly with race, that you, you know, they loved him and it came from the heart. You, you just know, can't do that listen, kind of comedy things anymore. Things adapt and things grow and, and people, the great ones, figure out their ways. And Chappelle's still, still, still here. doing the yeah. same. I, I don't want to say he's doing the same thing because he's, he's not, but he's still able to comment on all the stuff. It just... You have to listen, you adapt or die. And there's no there's no difference. And, and it's never been any different. And everyone yeah. thinks it's like yeah. this PC culture now. But we had Andrew Dice Clay on the show on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. He was the biggest comedian on the planet Earth. And then the movement turned against him. And a guy who, again, I know very well, who was not the guy he was on stage was taken out by the culture. They're like, no, you can't speak like that. So that was 30 years ago. So nothing's changed as much as people want to make it clear. I think that's kind of a distraction. At the end of the day, we all learn how to be better, kinder, this and that. And you learn how to adapt or you're not going to work anymore. It's just that simple. And I don't think that's something to go, oh, the, the PC culture is stopping me from working. You have to figure out how to adapt and be funny in the times. And the great comedians speak ahead of the times. 
like Chappelle, who still does it. So I, I don't I don't really look at it like, oh, poor us. We can't say this anymore. You can't abuse mm. these people anymore. I think you learn that, you know, stuff that you might have thought was funny 30 years ago. You should grow and you should understand that. You know, That's what I was going to say. You move on as a person as well. Like course. your attitudes change. You know, of course. Right. And, and again, it's not to like look at Eddie Murphy. But like the stuff that Eddie Murphy, which I don't I don't know or not know that gay people were offended by 30 years ago. But you certainly go, why would you say that now? Like, you got to be a fucking moron to say something like that yeah, in yeah. 2021. Why would you want to insult somebody like that? Right. But 30 years ago, we all need to, to grow and learn and and our comedy needs to ad- adapt. I got to I got to. I'll pay you some kind of compliment because I, I actually you. I don't know if you see it as a compliment or not, but I think you're coming back to dialogue. <laughs> uh oh. Well, no, I, I I I generally mean it from the heart. But when I think of you as creating what Jack said, like natural dialogue, flowing dialogue, it's very real. Uh, it's based around this friendship. Like the characters truly connect. I can think of very few TV or film writers slash directors that have been able to achieve that over time so the inspiration for school's A's, even though he doesn't write everything has achieved it right so you mentioned aaron sorkin it's a fucking he's a big up aaron you know, i love aaron to be fair he was on Wait, entourage he, he, by the way he's just i know i saw i remember he was it. the only reason yeah. i know what he looks like is because he was on entourage <laughs> yeah but but when it comes to spoken dialogue he's a freak of nature and then i think of rodriguez tarantino right they've got this ability to write in this kind of native tongue that feels natural and Entourage has that natural dialogue. So that's a rarefied company of people that can write in that style. Very few people. Of course, I, I take that of. as a compliment, but I, you know, it's also, you know, whatever. You know, I had some guy post something on Instagram, like his favorite directors or something. And it was like Quentin, Scorsese, um, I forget who else, me. And I was like, I was, yeah, and I'm like, all right, I'm like, ha ha, funny, bro. You know, and he's like, I'm serious, man. He got mad at me, but, uh, you know, I, Look, I got a lot of credit back in the day for writing that dialogue. I feel good about it. Like I said, that's the easy part for me. That's what comes naturally to me. Um, the, the grind of the storytelling, which, you know, Aaron is able to do so mind-bogglingly well in everything he did. You know, I used to watch West Wing episodes back in the day and go like, what the fuck? How is someone doing this on a weekly basis? It just seems... Yeah. incomprehensible to me but when aaron was on the show and didn't want to change any of the dialogue i was very happy so obviously i know the amount of work that goes into making a three-minute song what people hear on the surface right. is a three-minute song right and we're what i'm watching my you know 35 minute 45 minute episode of of entourage and i'm like oh this is amazing and i just behind the scenes just where do you start when you're trying to write an episode what does that process look like from beginning to end and you know there's all sorts of questions around that can you try and sum that up because such torture, it's torture. <laughs> that's the sad thing is i actually think about musicians all the time you know like i just you know whether you like or not we think about you bro whether, whether, you, think about whether you like or not i love i love like i love taylor swift and i watched her thing on disney plus like yeah i wrote this song in four minutes and like it just came into my head or like stevie nicks saying she wrote landslide in seven minutes you know it's playing 50 years later um Writing a script, for me anyway, is a, a torturous grind. And doesn't matter if it turns out good or bad, it was equally as difficult. And, you know, I am the type of person, which is why I try to make as few television shows as I can, to be honest with you. Once, once I'm immersed, <laughs> it's 24-7. And I, 
I'll wake up at 4 a.m. and think about this. I'll be in the shower thinking about that. And, you know, often, which maybe is like music, I hear words like music, dialogue specifically. Yeah. Story's a whole different animal that you have to really craft and grind. But dialogue kind of comes to me usually like music does. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I'll write, I'll write a whole scene in the shower and then I come back and, and go to type it and it doesn't play the way yeah. I heard it. You know, so it's like it's like the famous voice note when you're going like la la ba da ba da da, and it sounds trash when you listen to it. Like, see if I did that la 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 la, but it would it would sound like trash. You sounded good, but <laughs> but you know it's that it's that self critical thing also, which is such a tough thing for for artists, and it does why I know that guy. And it's not like again, I'm not even dismissing musicians. It just feels like every time I watch my favorite musicians, they talk about some classic song that they've knocked out in five minutes, and that drives me fucking crazy. Oh, but big time. Very very rarely, I mean, there are some writers. I was actually watching uh, some doc on John Hughes. John Hughes is one of the great comic writer directors of all time. He wrote Ferris Bueller in like seven days and never changed a word of it. You know, I, that that's not me. And that's not, you know, that's not the process for me. I so. find that so surprising because Entourage is so conversational and relaxed. It's not like big monologues and stuff. It's like, it's, it's very natural, like... Do you not find the more time you spend on that, you're sapping away that natural part? To it's it, not. You know I mean? It's like I said, it's not the dialogue. That's the easy part for me. Once I know the scene is about these three guys are trying to steal a car. Okay. But until I can figure out a, what the scene is about and then B how it relates to the rest of the story. And then it get like, oh. you know, like I said, looking at the episode yesterday, you know, a lot of people would say, Oh, I'm sorry, there's no story. There's no story. I watched a couple episodes yesterday. I'm like, there's so much story packed into 30 minutes and people dismiss it because of what you said, because the dialogue is kind of very natural and it feels like just people hanging out, but there really is a lot of story in there and it, yeah. and it took a lot of time and, you know, uh, you know, one of my favorite moments behind the scenes of Entourage was James Cameron, like top five filmmakers in the history of the world, maybe even top one. He was on the show as an actor and he was writing Avatar <laughs> in the trailer and he came out and I still like I don't know if he was fucking with me, but he's like, Doug, how do you, how do, you do this? You write these people. They sound so just regular and natural. I'm writing like these blue figures and all of this. Now, I didn't even know what he was talking about at the time because I didn't know about Avatar, but I think that's the skill I possess, which is writing dialogue in ways that people actually talk it. But the real grind, which maybe is in music also, finding the melody, I have no idea, but but the story is where the torture is. And the more you go on a show like Entourage, the harder it gets, you know, there was a line in, in the episode I watched yesterday, which I forgot, which someone said something about realism. And they said the only the only thing that's not realistic is that four guys our age would still hang out and live together. And that's what I always think about, because that was the most <laughs> unrealistic thing about the show, that guys into their 30s would still get to be that close because very few people do. You know, you know, usually yeah. you, you, people get married, they get their girlfriends, whatever. They move out of town. So, um but the dialogue was, I could write dialogue all day if I know what the scene is about. But that's, to me, is the easy part. The hard part is figuring out what the actual story is, how you're going to fit it into a 30-minute episode and make it move. You know, with the show, which is similar to the podcast, I never wanted to bore anyone. I wanted it to be over before you even knew it. It was like, and people are always like, it's yeah. so short. 
which it wasn't short. It was the same average as any other 30 minute show. But, you know, we, we, you know, had a very specific goal to make it move as quickly as possible. So, and even with dialogue, I would, you know, when I go back through dialogue, I get rid of every excessive word that I don't need, you know? So if I'm writing a three page, you know, which is really rare back then for a half hour show to have a monologue. Jeremy would talk about this on the podcast about he'd he'd wake up to a three page monologue. Like nobody does that on television in a comedy, you know? And, (laughs) you know, obviously he killed it in everything he brought to it. But before before it ever went to him, I'd gone through it. A thousand times obsessively, sometimes maybe needlessly, but every comma, every pause was, you know, in my head. So now I was going to ask a question about how you manage a big project like that. The magnitude of the the entourage universe is like a small marvel, right? So how do you manage that? Do you have like the biggest Microsoft projects thing ever? (laughs) Like with unlimited tabs or is it like a big whiteboard with sticky notes everywhere? And like, you know, like the detective noteboards, like, well, I mean, you know, Mark and I shared the same manager who was also the producer of the show. And the three of us had done exactly zero episodes of television when we started this. So while it was an incredible journey and worked out, well, it's better for most people to have some experience before they jump into this giant sure. thing. And we really, yeah. you know, and certainly, uh, you know, mostly me, made it up as I went along and is not the way to do it, even though the end result I, I'm happy with that it worked out. But now, like, I'm working on a new show now. I am far more prepared and have thought long and hard about where this is going. When Entourage got picked up after that two years of developing the pilot and HBO called me up and said, okay, it's, it was, I think it was December. And they said, okay, we'll start shooting in March seven more episodes, which is not a ton of episodes, but right. I went seven more episodes. What the fuck am I going to write seven more episodes about? Like I, I legitimately had no idea what the show was about after the pilot that I'd worked on it for two years. I'm like, okay, it's about these guys in Hollywood, but what the hell is actually going to happen every week? So, um, I just started going and started making it up as I went along, which is never a good process, especially when you're trying to bring in lots of other people to the process. So the smartest thing to do, which you know, my agent, who was the original inspiration for Jeremy Piven's character, when I was pitching Entourage, he gave me the Bible, which is what it's called, the whole uh, treatment for The Wire. OK, he said, this is what you go into HBO with. This was 90 pages written like a novel, something that if I spent the next 1200 years of my life working on, I could never, ever, ever do. <laughs> and. I almost didn't go to the meeting because I was like, I can't fucking do this. Like, I, I you know, because I am. I'm very. I mean, he set the fucking bar pretty high. Like, But I'm like off the cuff. I'm like, I'm kind of, you know, yeah. like, let's go here. Let's go there. But the more prepared you can be, it doesn't mean things won't change, which is why, like, the show I'm working on now, I could bring in other writers this time and go here. You know, think about this. Think about that. And then get into there. But. The writing process for me, like I said earlier, is the torturous part. Everything else, the production that I had, I had such amazing people that we were lucky enough to get to work on this show 
that the machine once scripts were done was really smooth and great. And our production was not only smooth, it was fun. It was just like a good time. What are these people going to talk about today? What are they going to do? What are the stories going to be? So is it fair to say that if there were three takeaways, like life favors the prepared, right? So, you know, more and you know, when we've, you know, Jackson, we talked about it right with your music, right? If you refine up the pyramid, right? Getting to that last 5%. So refinement, refinement, refinement. Like if you're obsessed about getting it right, you talk about taking extraneous words out of the story and making it as direct as possible. And then the third thing I heard was, you know, you really had a small team of guys that wanted to get something done. So there's uniform in numbers, right? If you've got great people that want to do something special, you hopefully you know, multiply the, the, the opportunities of success. Would that, was that, would that be kind of three? Yeah. I, mean, I, I definitely think all of those are good. You know, you know, it's kind of cliche, but you know, I, I did try to hire people who were better than me. The cliches for a reason. Yeah. But yeah. I try to hire people that were better than me in every, every department that I could find. I wanted people that were smarter than me, that were better than me. And, you know, you hope that you find that. And, of course, being prepared is extremely important. But in the simplest thing of the writing process for most human beings, I can't talk about the Stephen Kings of the world who can write 500 pages a week or Aaron Sorkin who can write an episode of television in a couple of hours. That's like, those are, you know, that's like LeBron James shit. There's nothing to explain. He just has something that most of us are not lucky enough to have. But, um, but rewriting for screenplays is the key. The blank page, mm. I always tell writers, even though I often fuck this advice up myself, you get a first draft out, no matter how bad it is, because it's always going to get better. The more you work on it, mm. the more you refine it. And it's like you say, you, you said with the dialogue, it, it is, especially for me, it's a rhythm and music, the way you know, one extra note, like... I, I just often could hear it and every little, you know, the guys, the actors on my show will tell you every little extra added word that they would add would drive me to insanity. And we used to battle. I'm like, I don't want that fucking and in there. And they'd be like, you're fucking crazy. It sounds the same. I'm like, it doesn't sound the same to me. Now, by the way, a thousand people might hear it and not know the difference. I have no idea, but I hear it how I hear it. And uh, that's what I would work on. And that's what I would sit there with those scripts and try to make sure every single sentence didn't have extraneous words in it. And that every single story didn't have extra beats that weren't necessary. in it. So I think the, that comment about the doing the first draft is so important. I think that applies to everything. Like even if it's a fucking email that you don't want to send, just yeah. do the draft. And then at least you've got something to work from. Cause I think these topics become interesting as you exist longer within an industry. Cause you almost, as the pressure mounts, like, whether it's previous seasons or previous work that's done stuff or whatever it is, you need to keep yourself in the game, right? And something I notice is just, you just got to do more. Like you got to write more, whether it, or write more music, write more stuff and just give less fucks because you've done the hours. So it's good. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I tell writers all the time. It's like, I don't believe in writer's block at all. I think it's the biggest bullshit procrastination, which I have a serious problem yeah. with. You know, is is the issue. But I have never sat down and actually started typing that something didn't come out. And usually there's something in that. Even if 50, 70 percent of it sucks, there's something in there. And it is a craft. And like I compare it to shooting free throws in basketball. The more you do it, 
the more you do get better at it. Now, yeah. And, and for me, unfortunately, like, you know, which I'll keep bringing up, but like, if I could do music, I would do it all day because I actually like it, but I can't. And writing is, you know, it, it's important. You do love it because it is a grind. And, and, and I never did love it. I loved everything that it got for me, which was on a set production, those are the things where I thrive, but the, the the empty screen is still the torture of my existence. So. The blank page. I, yeah. I got a question for you, Doug. So the two mo- independent movies you did, did you write them as well or did you just produce them? So I rewrote and directed both of those movies. So okay. rewriting does not mean that I got rid of the large percentage of what the idea of it was. So like this movie, Fat Beach, for instance, which, you know, this is not like, oh, this is my baby and this was my work. Someone brought me on Mm. to do it. I I put my stamp on it and then we directed it. But that was a $100,000 movie that 30 years later is still playing. I actually just saw the Stars app, just put it on the Stars app the other day. And then this other movie, Kissing a Fool, same thing. Uh, It was written actually, which was, an interesting story, if you guys remember this, but the, the original script was written by a guy named James Fry. I don't know if you remember him, but he wrote this book, A Million Little Pieces, that you know Oprah brought out, and then it became this whole fraudulent thing. But anyway, I took the script, I did the best I could with it, and then we made the movie. So, um, But not original ideas that I came up with. And then I directed both of those. So I got a follow-up question to that, a loaded question here. So <laughs> I over the years, I've, I've written a lot of, but mainly business shit. But actually, a lot of people don't know I come from a creative background. So in my early days, at my peril, I wrote three film scripts. And the last one famously went down in ashes with Miramax. Um, but it was an epic. And I advise everyone, don't go write three hours, fucking 20 minutes of runtime. All right. It was Was it ar- the fucking arduous. stand or something? No, no. It wasn't the fucking stand. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a chronology. on. It was called The Blood. And it was based loosely on the romanticism of the Holy Grail. Many people have approached it. There's a famous book, The Holy Blood, Holy Grail. But that was a lot of historical references. And I struggled to find the characters to, and the pull through through the whole story. The real question I've got is, I don't know if it's easier to compress and build stuff for TV than it is to... So if you encourage a budding writer and they say, I don't know what to do, I want to be in t- TV, I want to be in film, forget genre. Do they start with TV and start serialising or should they go after a film? And not even well, an epic, because I don't advise anyone to do it. Look at the fucking yeah. Irishman. Yeah, I love the Irishman. I no, slow it. dude. I enjoyed the Irishman as well, man. I loved it. Watch it again. I, I, I could honestly do it with 45 minutes or an hour less, even though I thought the story was great. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they could probably cut it, but I don't know. I, I, the more I watch it, like, it gets better to me, you know? First time I yeah, saw true. it, I did think it was very long, but I thought Casino was very long the first time I saw it, too, and now I, I've, watched, I've seen it a thousand times. So there's no answer to that because, I mean, first of all, you, you got to write something that speaks to you and that you love. I love history, and I've had, like I said, from – the Harry Tubman project I worked on to several others. And again, I wasn't writing that. I love history, but it's not something I think that I would write well. I'm too lazy to do research. I love to read it, but, and I love to go, wow, this is great. And then try to find a writer that can do that. So that's just not me, me, like what I'm going to write is going to come out of my head and my own experiences for the most. Um, But the idea of film versus TV especially today with 
with the film business really feeling like it's a dying business to me, short of ah, having yeah. short of having a giant spectacle movie, Marvel, whatever, or possibly your giant historical epic, it just seems the better stuff is happening on TV. The idea of, you know, I remember when Al Pacino, who who has children with Beverly D'Angelo, who was on Entourage, he came to the set. This is 15 years ago. And he was talking to me, like, which is crazy. It's like Al Pacino, but he's talking to me about this TV stuff. This is crazy. These characters just keep going and going and going. And that's what I love <laughs> about it, because you can do, God forbid, a bad episode of television and then come right back come strong back. the next week. Whereas the movie, you work for a year. Come out for the weekend, which is why, like, the Entourage movie. If the Entourage movie came out on HBO Max instead of worldwide in the theaters, it would have been enormously successful. But it had that one weekend to get however many people could come in to get these asshole critics to give it a good review. And then you're like, oh, my God, I just wasted a year of my life and people just dismissed it and it's gone. So uh, I personally like the, the TV business better and you know, when Entourage started, which 2001, when I pitched it, I was like, this show needs to feel like a movie. We need to film it as big as a movie, which at the time we didn't have giant TVs at home. But I said five years from now, 10 years from now, everyone's going to have these theaters in their house. So and you see it with what's coming on the streaming now. This is the best. This is probably the best time in television history for amount of quality shows that are on, you know. It, it, it's it's fair to say though, don't you think that with film, the fabric of cinema lives in in terms of stretching genre lives in the independent world, right? And if we were to lose that medium, we would lose some of the very best stories that actually can't be serialized, yeah. right? There's there's two completely different art. Yeah. Would you? Agree? Yeah, but I, I don't think we're going to lose it. But I just don't know if it's going to be. The, I don't know if it's going to be the theater experience. But Netflix makes The Irishman for 120 million bucks. And doesn't care that it didn't make any money. I mean, the amount of money that they are putting into this stuff is so nuts. But I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know that any studio would have spent that much money on it 10 years ago to release it in theaters. So I think the only problem that I see is that the streamers now for the TVs have sort of turned it into the film business now where TV used to be about the writer. That was the key. If you had a great writer, now it's you got to have a movie star, just like you used to have to have in a film. I don't know though, because there's a series that's blown up over here, and like the new one is behind her eyes, which doesn't really have. Have you not heard? So it's this one that's booted off over here. It's, it, the only notable person in it, in it is a uh, Bono's daughter, is uh, one of the lead, and it's like. It's this weird little story about a love triangle with like a supernatural element to it, and it's it it's a mystery ultimately. Like, but it's it's like it's massive over here. Everyone's talking about it, and it hasn't got anyone big in it. Like, I, I, like it, yeah. Like, I feel like yeah. Idris Elba yeah. is like the rollout for a lot of stuff. Like, he gets plied into a lot of stuff, and then it doesn't. I don't know if it pulls the same way. Like, I feel like people buy into the story nowadays more so that. And then who's talking about it? Like, hearsay means something a lot yeah. more than it. The buyers lot, don't. So now, the buyers don't. I mean, ah. you know, like, sure. I, if you I agree can, with If that. you can get through the system with no stars, you know, name stars per se, which was very important to me. But now everything I do now, they're like, okay, can we attach this person? Can we attach that person? Which, you know, it's. Uh, 
it's frustrating because as a writer, you know, like what I loved about Entourage is that, and, and they all had good careers beforehand, but they weren't name, known names. But first season of Entourage, there were people who legitimately thought it was a documentary. They were like, is this a, like, is this a real movie star and his friends or what? It yeah, has that and that's feel. what we wanted, yeah. you know? And, uh, you know, uh, we had, you know, my two two favorite directors on the show were both Brits, and uh, they really brought that to it. And, and Mark Mylott, who does uh, lots of succession, um, you know, brought that vibe to it. That was really important to it, so. Hey, 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 Doug, you talk about coming over to London. You know you can actually come over to London now, right? I know. Well, I'm supposed to be doing some show, but we'll see. I'm just waiting. So as soon as they tell me they're ready to uh, actually write, yeah. as soon as they're ready to write checks, I'll come over there, you know? <laughs> I find that interesting where Martin was talking about independent cinema still being important. And I, I would, you'd almost class some of these like shows without big names. They're like independent concepts where people are passionate about a storyline. Obviously, it's not totally independent. It might just be made by a smaller a production house etc etc yeah. right and you forgive me for my layman terms i know fuck all about this shit yeah, yeah? but it's just shit i would want to ask someone who's in the game right so is that then where the big studios go okay tv's the big thing now we need to do our big studio thing in it and you know get the biggest actors and all that shit isn't that then that's when the art form starts getting a bit shitty basically you know listen it's i'm not stupid the biz the business is called the business because it's a business and you know if you want to be oh, an artist, yeah. fucking paint, you know, and, and, you know, be Billie Eilish, make a fucking record on your bed with your brother and, you know, and win six Grammys, you know, but when you want to make a show that costs 50 to a hundred million bucks minimum, you know, for a season or 40, whatever, you gotta, you gotta understand there are people who are thinking about how is it going to make money? So it's not like I don't get it, but okay. It's still a tough process because you are at odds with certain people. But at the same time, look, I don't I don't want to make anything that doesn't that loses money for people. That's not something that I'm interested in doing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it is what it is. Let me, let me let, Jax, just to clue you in here, there is actually an underlying methodology that the studios use and when no one likes it, but it's just the way it is. And it's back to what I say to you all the time. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? And so there's a few things they do. One, right, they look for the story, right? It's pretty obvious. It's got to, it's got to stack up. It's got to be relevant or resonant or whatever. Then they look for bankability, which is why they always attach people that have already got an envelope. Or, you know, people recognize them. And then the last thing they always look for is audience segmentation. If they don't understand the audience, they don't buy. And that's the commercial reality yep. that we live in. And so everything, and every now and again, something strays from that. Now, the good thing about streaming is they're taking more risk and they're buying cheaper product from the Nordics, yep. the Scandies and all of that. And there's some great well, the products. barrier to entry is lower because as you just said there's not relying on the launch yep. of the weekend launch right they don't they Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna stand up for a second i got i got some basketball injuries i'm like sitting here cramping so <laughs> you, you go you go how hold up he's walking away from the uh, camera that's pretty cool dude do us some lap no one's ever done this shit you before. don't care about cool, this dude. Right? there's me smoking a cigar uh, i'm like nah, who gives I'm a fuck we can still cramp. i'm gonna dude, walk all right, so I like your room, yeah. though. It's very um, symmetrical. You've got are those two entourage posters on each side of the curve. No, this is this is when the garden was eaten, which was a documentary I did that I I, I lost six Emmys for entourage, but I won one for that documentary. So, Gee, oh, hold on, leave <laughs> that on the camera. That looked fucking sick. Yeah, put that. Oh my god, hey, that looks like an yeah, NBA. Yeah, dude, have you got a fucking ring an, for that as that's well? An Emmy. <laughs> 
So I can still hear you. I'm going to be right here for one minute. My awards are shit. What do you got? Fuck my awards, man. (laughs) I got like number one awards and all that kind of stuff, but they don't give awards like that in music. I've got a Grammy Uh, nomination and it's a rusting Tiffany medal piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) I got to tell you what's really funny is Doug was walking around the room. Now he's left the fucking room. All we need him to do is take a piss now. It's fucking hysterical. (laughs) It's because his award is bigger than ours. (laughs) Fucking bullshit. (laughs) Dude, I just realized that you sit with your little podcast there in your movie room. Does that get much much airtime? You mean do I sit here and watch movies? Yeah. You know, I, uh, you know, this is where I write now. This is where I write now. This is where I, I spend a large portion of my life in this room. You know, the reason I say that is I've, in my places, I've got a bunch of like theater rooms or whatever. And I've got to be really honest, right? Other than the kids playing fucking Xbox in them on big screens, like I, occasional screenings and they are occasional. I never use them. I don't, you know, I got the theater projector so I can get first run movies, you know, yeah. the day they come out in the theaters, which when I got it four years ago was like the coolest thing in the world. Obviously, the world's different now, but even when the world was normal, I probably got five movies in, in a year. You know, I just it's like, you know, the things I feel that, like you read a lot. Do you read a lot? I don't. Do you have to read a lot to do what you do? You should. No? <laughs> I listen to a shitload of music. I listen. Like, I listen to a lot of music. I don't read like I should. I listen. I don't write like I should. As we were talking about earlier, when I was young, I, I did it more. But if you're going to be a writer, you got to do it every day. I certainly don't. I certainly should. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm 53 now. I just don't have that kind of fire that I had when I was 25, you know? You know, uh, you were saying earlier about, um, you know, where it's like a little nugget where you talked about film kind of dying a little bit, basically where TV's taking over. And, you know, is that, do you reckon that's caused by obviously the status quo with streaming and obviously that's going to be accelerated by the pandemic, but is that consumer demand or, uh, you know, is there going to be a place for film in the future? You know, where do you see that? You know what? It's hard for going me to... for the consumer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's hard for me to answer because I always look, when I was a kid, I loved going to the movies, the experience of being in a movie so, no, the theater experience is crazy. Yeah. But I don't know that I don't know whether kids care about that. The attention span is so low. I mean, you know, I, I used to go crazy 10 years ago and people would watch my shit and be on their phones. Now you walk into a movie theater. It's like everybody's on their phone. Everybody's on this. So it's, it's hard for me to say. And as the TV keeps getting better, as the, you know, as your in home experience keeps getting better, I'm not sure because it's like, I loved going to theaters for a comedy. I love the, the group laughter, all of that stuff. But now I feel that, you know, a lot of people think the only reason to go to a movie theater is for some giant special effects laden thing. But um, and I know me, you know, I go to the movie theaters for getting the pandemic less than five times a year now when I used to go 50 times a year. So it's hard, it's hard for me to say what the young people are going to do. I, I know that I now personally, I like to watch a movie at home and it looks so good and it sounds so good that, you know, I don't really want to go into the theater and have people breathe on me and everything else. Yeah, so. yeah. I think what it is for me about TV is the reliability of it, right? So where life is fast now and there's shit, be, there's shit happening all the time, do you know what I mean? And there's something about, especially I like to watch series generally when it's finished, right? Because then it's, you can plan it, yeah, and you can pack it's packaged and you know what you're doing tomorrow night. Like, you know what you're doing 
Oh, you know, it's that time. Like I, I, I know most success, no matter who you are, whether you're on the beginning of the ladder success or even crazy successful people, they make time for this thing that they're watching and pretty much in the pockets before they sleep. Like no matter how busy I am, I make time, 15 minutes, even if I've worked a fucking 21 hour day, I'll watch 15 minutes of that show I'm watching just cause. And I think that's what it is about yeah. TV. Well, it's also like the, the good thing. Sometimes like you hear a good movie came out and it's two hours and for some reason, I can't do that. Some reason yeah. that you'll watch four episodes of a half hour show, which is two hours, but it's just the little, the little pieces of it all play into the same shit. I think, which is that attention span, you know. And uh, I love that's why I, you know, Entourage was a half hour dramedy. I love the half hour form. I love uh, those shows like Fleabag, where you know you could watch all of them in a day and you can't stop watching it. So. Um, you know, that's my favorite thing. It always, no matter what, there's a bunch of good movies out right now, but for some reason I keep turning on television shows instead of watching these movies because it feels like more of a commitment for whatever reason, you know? It is. What movies are you watching? I haven't watched anything, but I know there's this Francis McDormand one. I don't even know the name that I've been wanting to watch day after day after day. And then I'm like, oh, I'll turn, I, I got to finish Cobra Kai season three, you know? I got to watch, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, Love Island. <laughs> I watched that during the pandemic. Did you guys ever watch this show? Which one? Love Island. Love Island, UK. Yeah, of course, dude. I mean, oh, this shit was that was a pandemic no. in itself. It's like now the new one is Married at First Sight. I mean, Married at First Sight is the new crack, basically. Like my friends host Love is Blind. Did you watch that one? Uh, I've I've seen that one as well. That one's I amazing. watched basically if you're if you're any kind of basically dedicated partner, you need to dedicate some part of your life to watching those shows with your significant <laughs> other. If you're serious about your relationship, basically. But I just love, uh, you know, love <laughs> Island, you know, cause I'm writing this UK show, which, you know, like I said, writing dialogue for me is very easy, but all of a sudden I'm writing as British people, which is obviously more challenging when I'm not there. And I, I've been there three times in my life. So, uh, but watching love Island, I was like, you know, talking to all my British friends. I'm like, is this real dialogue? Are people saying this? And I don't know if you've ever saw that SNL sketch that um, um, what's her name did uh, Fleabag. It was genius where she did a Love Island spoof. It was so funny. But I've got to check that out. I mean, oh my god, it is hysterical. All right, and and that's the thing because I'd be watching. I'm like calling my British friends. I'm like, do you guys all say this? Like, we got great crack. We got great banter. All of this stuff is this real dialogue? You know? Do you find it hard? Like. Because I even think this is relevant from any perspective, translating your stuff that so it connects on a worldwide level. And there's definitely different cultural elements that you have to include for it to work with an American audience, to work with an English audience. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what would you say? And I think that applies to product as well. Like, there's different yeah. things that people I mean, look for. What What is it that on your mind when you're doing that? I don't think about that, you know. And I have I have some British writers I'm working with, so they'll come in and tell me we would never say that. Or we would never say this, but I, I think human stories are human stories, you know, and that's the yeah. first thing you got to find. And then you can craft the dialogue to go, OK, they, they wouldn't say it quite like this, but still stories are the same. You know, I mean, so um, and I've always been a fan of British comedy and drama. That's stuff I've watched my whole life. John Cleese was also on Entourage was, you know, and you were talking you were talking a different Holy Grail. But, you know, I, I actually watched I watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail in the last couple of months, and it still holds up like perfectly. I still say the same line. My girlfriend doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. Like with the Meghan Markle interview came on, I'm like, 
She's like, do you like her? I'm like, I didn't vote for her. And she has, which is a line from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. She has no <laughs> idea what I'm talking about. But, um, but you know, I, I think that type of humor always, you know, Faulty Towers was my favorite sitcom when I was growing up, even though there's only like fucking yeah, eight yeah. episodes of it. I watched them a thousand times. So I love the way the Brits speak, speaks to me. That being said, when I'm writing it, I still have to throw it through a filter because unlike Entourage, which was New Yorkers, which I know like the back of my hand, it's a little different. So, But culturally, I don't think about stuff. I am a New Yorker, even though I've lived in Los Angeles longer than I lived in New York by a lot. But um, I would never... No one would ever meet me and go, oh, you must be from L.A. Everybody meets me and goes, oh, from New York. I'm like, I haven't lived there in 30 years, but fortunately, I've, I've maintained my uh, my essence, I guess. Dude, you come across <laughs> as East. I know you're from New York, but you come good, across good. as East that's Coast, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, the, the interesting thing about um, British com- comedy in particular versus what you wrote is that it's so dry. And I, I don't wish it on anyone, particularly from America, to try and write something that will you cross over to to England, right? It's very, uh, Europe's been doing it for years and hasn't succeeded. And yet Entourage did. And and yet Cheers did. There are a few things, Frasier did, right? There's only a few things that we can really count that said, you know, that stacks up to British comedy. The question I've got for you is, you mentioned in the old time, so I think of Life of Brian, Monty Python, you know, Holy Grail is wonderful. And then 40 Towers, just genius, right? Is there what are the other things that you like about British comedy, like in recent times? Did you ever watch uh, Gervais' yeah, The of Office course, or anything you like know, that? I mean, Ricky's. I mean, you know, like I look at Ricky like I look at Larry David. These are guys that just like are my kind of comedy heroes, you know. And Cleese. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. And by the way, Fleabag. I mean, there's nothing that I've seen better in the last decade, comedy-wise. You know, um, dramedy. Really, obviously. So, you know, I think yes. whatever it is, and hopefully with the British show I'm doing, hopefully uh, hopefully it goes. But I don't look at it as how can I translate it. I, I, whatever that dialogue is, I kind of, I feel that vibe. And it's the stuff that I've always just kind of taken to. So I don't think it's something that you can make a conscious choice that I'm going to, try to talk like these guys, but I think the universal themes are hopefully what came across. And with Entourage, you know, when we were selling that, nobody wanted Hollywood stuff. Now there's a lot of Hollywood stuff because all the stuff that came after Entourage, from TMZ to all of this internet and Instagram made Hollywood much more accessible than it was 20 years ago. But that wasn't what the show was to me anyway. The show was about family and friendship. And you know, it's funny you say a show like Cheers, which Cleese was also on Cheers, one of the best guest performances ever on a sitcom. But Cheers <laughs> yeah. was a huge influence on me, Cheers and Frasier. And the writing on that, which, again, I'm not trying oh, yeah. to say I'm anywhere near that, but that's often been thoughts in my head. And when I've looked, whenever I'm writing a new pilot, I look at the Cheers pilot. I also look at the Frasier pilot a little bit. But the Cheers pilot is one of the best half-hour pilots to introduce characters in a short timeline, in a small space, which I, even though Entourage, I tried to make it a much more visual, filmic show, it's still, at the end of the day, I write a little bit like a play. And I think that's what the great thing about British comedy always was to me. 
it didn't require all of the bells and whistles. It was really about the dialogue and the acting. And that's the stuff that, that speaks to me the most, you know? That's true. I, I think so. Well, you know, cheers. The, uh, when I'm thinking about British TV compared to American like TV stuff, is the production value feels smaller. It's smaller budgets. It's small. It's, it is yeah. just some, sometimes like just people in quite normal environments, yeah. basically. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. you know, and again, but this, the thing is, and yes, I love that Entourage, we got to do all the cinematic shit that we did. But still, at the end of the day, like when I watched Fleabag, which I just it was on the other day, um, you know, the episode where she sneaks up on her boyfriend, she puts on a fucking ski mask and has a butcher knife and he starts crying. I mean, like it's shot in a little bathroom like this, but you have two genius actors and brilliant writing. And that's all all that I ever want to watch. And even with Entourage, half the time I close my eyes when I'm directing and I listen much more than I'm watching. Like my cin- cool. my cinematographer can make sure that the shot looks great and that the, the girls in the background look great and the pool looks great. But all I care about is what I'm hearing, you know? So uh, th- those are the things I speak to. So, well, One one thing I want you to go, but we'll, we'll finish the, the script, the process and talk more about the future TV and what you're doing next. But is there a process you go through? You've, you've, you've kind of talked about it from different angles in terms of how you approach characters and story. But is there any kind of method you use for approaching writing the script? Like, would you say, look, this is the four or five things that you organize yourself to prepare? Well, to I mean, write? I think, again, what I've learned, you know, far too late in my life is to really some writers especially think like, oh, if I just kind of make it up as I go, I'm not falling into all the cliches that I need. But the truth is you need those cliches. Beginning, a middle, an end, a strong story, and strong wants and desires for your characters. So now I do, before I write anything now, I spend a lot of time thinking about what is the theme of this show? What is the main character? Who is the character? And what do they want? And those things can help a lot in a script. So I think I think there are some imperatives that you should do before you start writing and just blasting out stuff. Um, but everybody's going to have a different process that works for them, you know. And a lot of what I write, I find while I'm writing. I find the characters while I'm writing. And, you know, it is that kind of weird thing. Like, I don't know where that came from. But it just did. You know, part of the problem, even with Entourage, you know, we, you know, I got um, what they call coverage from the agencies when I wrote the pilot. Some of the worst stuff you've ever seen in your life. And I've had some of those agents that wrote that stuff called me after they saw it and said I read it in a completely different tone than than what it was. And, you know, those are some of the pitfalls that you have to get over. And as a writer, which I never considered myself really a writer. I kind of see myself as the guy who, whatever that term is, that's going to see it all the way through. And when I'm writing, I see it so crystal clear what I'm expecting to be on the screen. But somehow as a writer, you have to find a way to put that on the page so that someone who doesn't get inside your head can see it before you have to spend millions of dollars and produce it to get that desired effect. So, I mean, talking about adapting, um, we wanted to ask you about you know, like in the film industry where particular like award ceremonies would need to become, well, there've been comments about it needing to be more inclusive and diverse, you know, in terms of recognition, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think TV has a similar problem, will have or has the similar problem? Well, I mean, that's the case now, you know, I mean, it's not 
I think there will always be overcorrections and then things will get back. But I think there have been people that have been underrepresented for a long time. And as someone who feels very good about the fact that I came up with the idea, produced the show, that was one of the, there was 30 characters in this thing I did called The Brick that I had John Ridley write and and Spike Lee ended up directing, but almost all of the cast was African-American. And at the time, which was only eight years ago, people were like, who's going to make a show with all African-Americans in the show? So I think that that's okay, that they're overcorrecting and going, okay, now we got to do this, that, and that. But I still think there are stories that will just be white people. And there are stories that will just be black people. And there are stories that will just be Indian people. So I like to see the balance and I'd like to see everyone fairly represented, but you don't want any type of stories altogether to disappear because someone thinks we have to do something like, you know, a lot of people would talk about entourage at the time. Well, why wasn't there a black character in this, in these four best friends? And I said, well, which was very specific to me. I said, this is the way I grew up. And I did have one good black friend in my high school. That was it. It was the only black kid in my whole high school. So I said, I'm going to have to write about the way I grew up and the way I know it, not try to put it into some box. And Hollywood at the time, I would say there were no black agents. Go walk around creative artist agency. I didn't create this, but if we want to start making it look like a fake world, then we'll start going, there's all these things. Now, I do think Hollywood has made strides and that the agency does look different than it did 15 years ago, and any new show should reflect it. But I don't think things should be started as, oh, let's see how we can make this as diverse as possible. But that being said, if, you're, if your show works in diversity, great. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't. But I think it's, I think it's good that there's, they're making these corrections and, and hopefully – at the end of the day, great stories will be great stories, you know? Well, I think the bit, there was a big upset recently in TV land. I think, what was it, with Michaela Cole and her series? I don't know who Do that is. you know the one I'm talking about? Uh-uh, I don't even know who that is. I May Destroy You. Very British. It got mad Very British, love. by the way. It was a, pretty much a black cast, and it was a re- but it wasn't a racial TV series. Yeah. Like, it wasn't based around race, and it, or, and it wasn't didn't play on any overt stereotypes to do with black people, right? right? It was a, a show about a young woman growing up in a city and dealing with uh, sex crimes, basically, right. like, against her, like, form... And, and it will be... What was interesting about it was it dealt with the minutiae of sex. Uh, shit like men putting... Like, having an encounter with a dude and a dude taking the condom off without telling a girl. Right. What is that? Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and so, and it was like a drama comedy. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it was at points a bit like weird and it was cool. She was a dope character and he got snubbed for a Golden Globe nomination. Right. And the whole headline was Emily in Paris, which was otherwise quite a normal show. Right. Pick, tore it up and Michaela Cole, who was well written, well described as being the breakout star of last year, got nothing. Like, I don't know how you explain something like that, basically. Like. I mean, listen, I didn't see it, so I can't comment. I think we all know that there's been plenty of people that have been snubbed for race. And, you know, there's been plenty of underrepresentation. Um, so is it possible that that's why it got snubbed? Sure. But I, I don't know. I didn't I didn't see it. But I think, you know, 
there's a balance that hopefully we'll find between diversity and still making sure we can tell stories, whatever they are. I mean, you know, the story about the Irish mob is probably not going to have that many Latinos in it, you know, and the story about, you know, a Latin mob probably won't have that many Irishmen in it. But I, I think there's a balance that we have to find. But that being said, I think it's I think it's a great thing that we're making sure that everybody's represented and that people, you know, like we said earlier, the gatekeepers who controlled TV and film for so many years and could make sure that mostly white people were represented. I think it's great that now people are going and going, how can we find a way to do this and tell great stories, though, which at the end of the day is all that interests me, you know, and uh, mm. and I, I, I yeah. And I think, you know, but that's what somebody's got to make sure that the. The old white dudes don't have all the control. And I think that's that's seems to be working. I think it comes from what you say, like uh, basically having more people making the product that they know. So you're going to write about what yeah. you know, and another, more, you know, a Chinese writer will write yeah. about what they know. And then just that get into also, the masses. But also I, I, I think... You know, I'm just happy that Chinese people are not just small dicks and funny jokes. You know, they're much more yeah, wider I mean, characters I think, now. Listen, <laughs> Being a Chinese I, guy I myself. <laughs> the democratization of everything that's going on is going to mean that talented people are going to be represented whether they like it or not. And the, the people who don't want to see that through are going to disappear. And that's what's going to happen. And the best talent is going to win. It's just that simple. And, you know, I mean, you know, I think the podcast is a great example of this. No one, like, there's no gatekeeper stopping this now. You're going to find your audience or you're not. If people find you interesting, whether you're black, white, Chinese or not, you're going to go out there. And I think what Hollywood was for a long time was old white guys picking what they wanted to see represented and old white guys determining who they wanted to win these awards. You know, I'm not a big fan of the awards things anyway. I think it's fucking stupid. It's not mm. to say I don't like Miami that's sitting over there, but, you know, it's not a sporting event is what is to me. LeBron James either wins or he doesn't. Nobody's going to stop that. Nobody gets to determine that except for yeah. what happens on the court. But outside of that, you do have gatekeepers who get to vote. You do have millions and millions of dollars that people care about who wins these awards because at the end of the day, for me, it's cool to have a trophy in my in my house, but the reality is what's the purpose of that Emmy award or that Oscar to get more people to watch and pay for your shit. So it's huge. It also leads to another really important point, And that's that there are two things that make the world more connected back, back to the best talent, the best stories, but also it also sheds a light on the fact that we can't look at the delivery of the medium, but we have to look at how does it really fit? And this is why independent film won't die just like TV may be the commodity or, or the rarefied thing that just gets continually produced. But it's because yeah. you won't see the stories if you don't have those mediums. And the other thing is if you want commercial, if you want commercial reality, yeah. then diversity connects you with a global audience. And streaming has now connected people even more. So now we're watching things from all over Europe. Now we're watching a Chinese gangster movie, right? Now we're watching things that are more inclusive than we ever had. It's hard to make a case with all the cash in the industry, which started with tech dollars coming into film, and say that that's really a bad thing. What do you think? Yeah. No, I, I, like I said, all, all of it is, is, speaks to the same thing. Democracy is going to win. 
and talent is going to rise and all the people who thought they were in charge are going to slowly disappear. And, you know, you can be a poor Chinese kid in the middle of nowhere and make a film for very, very little that the whole world can see instantaneously. So I believe that, you know, Billie Eilish is a great example of it. You know, I mean, fuck, I don't know. I mean, obviously she's so talented, but she's 16 years old, 30, 20 years ago. Do you think like she would have won the Grammy this year, you know, like by making this album in a room? I mean, no, she's got to find a label. She's got to find a studio. She's got to find people who believe they know how to produce it better than her and her brother knew how to do it. So now the world just wins. She puts it out online. People love her. Justin Bieber, similar thing. And it's like, that's that's it. Now, those are obviously rarefied talents. But I think the opportunity, I, when I was 21 years old, made a short film. It took me a year. It took me beg, borrowing, and stealing the money for it. I then had a handout. VHS tapes to people when walking around town like a fucking idiot going, here, take a look at my movie. And now that I could do the same right. thing that I did then for a couple of hundred bucks in two days and have it out on the internet in five seconds. So I think this is a great time for creators. I think it's a great time for natural diversity without the rules being put in place that you have to do things. I think it's just going to come. And, you know, movies like mm. Parasite, I don't know if that's the example because, but. I mean, America really took to that movie in a different way than maybe they would have 20 years ago. And I think one of the things for me, who was a person who was always watching foreign films and interested in that stuff, none of my friends would. They'd be like, it's subtitled. I'm not watching that shit. Are you out of your mind? And now people are starting to get used to that. And people are watching Netflix and going, you know what? I don't even want to watch it dubbed. I want to watch it with the subtitles in the original language because it's so much more interesting. So I, I love that. You know, uh, keep in mind that that yeah. Parasite had yeah. one of the most awesome directors like in the last twenty years, right? I mean, it really. I mean, it was yeah. just a work of art, and it's a story yeah. that everyone relates to. It's like class. It's the story of like climbing social ladders, like which everyone in America can relate to, no matter who you. I mean, are. listen, the movies, the movies, genius. Obviously, I just felt like a lot more people that I know that normally wouldn't go see a subtitled movie. We're, we're going to see it and loving it. And I think it's because Netflix, Amazon is getting people used to this stuff. And I think that we're going to see, you know, unfortunately, possibly for Americans that we're not the only filmmakers, that there are amazing filmmakers from all over the world. And I think we're going to find more and more of them as we go on, you know? It's a beautiful thing. So like, as we near the end of this wonderful discussion, tell us what's next for you. Uh, now, you've, you've intimated, uh, obviously, this Thierry Henry project. You're going to continue yeah. with v- Victory, the podcast. I mean, I saw that and I was fucking yeah. gassed. Like, Thierry Henry oh, he's a you Globally. on a premiership. Yeah. I mean, I, there's, it's timely to yeah, do one, the man. Thing is, you know, so it's, it's funny you say timely. Like, you know, Thierry's manager, Darren Dean, is my friend and – he called me to, to put Thierry in the movie back in the day. And he's been asking me to write this, some version of Entourage in Premier Football League. I don't look at any of the other shows because it doesn't matter to me. It's like, you know, Martin said earlier, he's talking about Cheers. Like, people go, okay, so it's going to be Entourage in football. So is is The Office 
cheers at an office. I mean, like it, it just, no. it's, it's a irrelevant comment. So what interests me about premier football and again, Ted Lasso it's a very successful show. Yeah. The show I'm working on will not feel like Ted Lasso, though there will be a, Football, soccer ball, whatever you guys want to call it. I know it. We call it. Soccer. It will be that. It's not difficult, dude. But at Come the on, end man. of the day, <laughs> I, I like I like it called football, and I agree. But just for Americans, I got to say soccer. But at the end of the day, what makes a show work is characters and story. And the world, while, of course, that helps us make it real sexy and this and that, that's almost irrelevant. It's really putting these people in that you want to see them, like I said with Fleabag, in the bathroom, in the shower. But we're going to make something. It, it won't feel anything like Ted Lasso to me, and I like Ted Lasso a lot, but completely different. But, again, trying to do a really realistic look, which there's been 10, 15 shows that have directly kind of ripped off Entourage over the years and really gone like, it's going to be about this and that. But this, hopefully, like Entourage was... And like this show, the, the brick that I tried to do uh, was loosely inspired by Mike Tyson. It's just loosely inspired by Thierry's life. Um, but at the end of the day, will be about friendship, family, and hopefully a very realistic look at what the life of an international football star is like and what the life of their family is like. So when's it dropping, man? Where are you at with it? Is it written? So, is it have you started so the shooting? Pilot's written? Matthew Vaughn is producing it and, and directing the pilot. So I'm really waiting on him to say, let's go. The pandemic kind of shut us down. We've been ready for a while, uh, mm -hmm. but that's the plan. So hopefully soon. It's called Day Ones and it's, uh, you know, it's... Um, day yeah. Ones. Oh my God, that's a proper English term as well. I mean, yeah. my Day yeah. Ones, yeah. baby. And, and I think, <laughs> I you that. know, again, forgetting like, because people go, oh, there's Ted Lasso. It's nothing like Ted Lasso. I mean, it's zero to do with Ted Lasso except for the football is in it. Just like to me, entourage and bowlers have almost nothing to do with each other. People can compare them to me. There's, they're night and day. They I mean, are they night just and don't day. Don't even have, you know. Um, so you know, we'll see. But that's the plan, and we've been trying to cast it over Zoom. Um, I've never even sat in a room with Matthew Vaughn. We're like friends, Zoom. Um, but hopefully, we'll get we'll get this rolling in the next few months. Who are you getting to do the music? Because when you talk about entourage, the music was lit. It was part of it, man. So how are you approaching this on uh, day ones? <laughs> so, you know, I'll, I'll approach it the same way. The way I started with Entourage Music, I started writing the music that I wanted to hear in, which early seasons were a lot of my choices. Then my friend, Scott Venner, which is straight out of Entourage, he wasn't even he wasn't even in the fucking music business. He approached me to, to uh, I, I think when he, did he, he worked on yep. Ballers, right? Or something like that. And he asked me to use one of my tracks. And I remember it was early doors in my career. And I was like, oh my God, Scott Venner's awesome. He did Entourage. Yeah. This is fucking yeah. crazy. And then he didn't end up using the end. And I, I was pretty sad. What but an asshole. It, it was, I'm going to have to tell him he's an asshole I mean, for that. But. Fucking outrageous. Him, he's an but asshole, you, man. Yeah. But you know, like straight out of Entourage, Scott was my, my ex-wife's friend from college. And he was my boy. We played basketball for 20 years. And he would come watch episodes and be like, the music sucks. The music sucks. I'm like, what the fuck do you know? And out of nowhere, this guy is bringing <laughs> music to me. He's got this amazing, you know, amazing ear and he's built this successful career out of this. He's got a podcast with Pharrell now. And, uh, yeah, so yeah. we'll do the same thing. I mean, Scott, you know, we're, we're, like I said, you can see the, the classic rock music that was my, 
inspiration early on in the show, and then it started getting younger and hipper, which was Scott. We will have we will ha- we will have the cool cutting edge music for sure. And Entourage, we were doing it before most shows were doing it with a limited budget and pulling it off, you know, and getting everybody from Kanye to break a song on the show to Led Zeppelin to to give us a song which nobody thought we could get in a million years. Does that just bump up your bottom line? Oh, my God. You know, like where you're finishing off the show, you shoot the whole thing, you got all, you're shutting down restaurants to oh, shoot, yeah. you're shooting on Hollywood, you know, all that crazy shit, all these big mansions you're mm-hmm. renting, and then your music budget must be as equal yeah. to all of that because to license all that shit must it have been crazy. crazy. and difficult and not just money, which was expensive, but, you know, like we had to get Jimmy Page and Robert Plant to sign off on this, you know, and uh, I, re- I mean, literally like a bicycle had to be driven up like an Irish countryside to someone's castle to like hand someone a DVD to get them to sign off on going to California <laughs> to end Entourage on. And uh, those are the types of things we would we would do. You know, and then things like Kanye would call us and be like, I want to release this song on the show. Like The Good Life, that was the first time the song was, as far as I know, was ever heard. Yeah, so, uh, you know, cool. yeah, we had some good stuff that happened. I was going to say, actually, because there have been scenes in shows that have been so pivotal that have launched artist careers off the yeah. back of a yeah. song in a show, basically. For sure. There was a lot of stuff with us. You know, we did we did a podcast with, with Scott Venner on ours. We talked about all of the stuff and all the, the needles that would move on the charts when we would put a song on. And it was pretty cool because people really started realizing how many people were really watching this show by that alone, you know? So it was pretty cool. Dude, that makes you a market maker. All right. You that- know, yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, we did a lot of that stuff there. We, we, you know, we launched it, you know, not intentionally necessarily, but we launched the tequila brand off the show and, you know, watched it sell for $300 million within a year and a half. So, you know, it was... Where's your equity? Yeah, yeah. I got got to beat them out of it, you know, beat it out of them. So, but, you know, that's uh, part of the cool things that, you know, we were able to do on that show. 